Hello everyone, my name is Matt Phelan and you are listening to Happiness and Humans. I am here with the uh, amazing Stephen Bianchi. How, how are you, Stephen? I'm well, thank you, Matt. What's um, what, 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 what have you been up to this morning? It's, it's early, I imagine, um, being up to anything or is it breakfast and sort the kids out stuff? Oh, no, no, no. This is, uh, we're recording now, it's quarter after 10. This is my fourth meeting today. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Uh, when, when you're dealing with a, a largely remote and distributed workforce, um, you kind of lose all sense of uh, time. Geography becomes irrelevant these days. So. Mm. Um, I'm going to come back to that, actually, Stephen. Um, sure. Before we do, please uh, introduce yourself and confirm or deny if you're the heir to the Bianchi uh, bike brand. <laughs> I'd love to confirm that, but uh, uh, if that were true, I don't know if I'd actually be here today, right? <laughs> so, so, uh, yeah, I'm, sure. I'm sure you would have still accepted my invite if you were a billionaire doing your thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, unfortunately, that's not true. Um, but I am uh, the Chief People and Operating Officer at Beamery, uh, which is an HR tech company. Focuses very much on front of funnel uh, building technology process methodology for helping uh, businesses to find the right people, bring them in and engage them and retain them in their business. Uh, outside of that, I support a number of startups, mostly in London and in Europe, uh, and uh, a couple of uh, larger PE uh, companies. Um, and really, my, uh, my contributions there range actually from HR topics right through to uh, with one organization. I actually advise the chief digital officer, so nothing to do with HR at all, actually quite quite a bit around data management. Stephen, I've got a new question that I've started to ask. You're the first person that's going to have to face this question. Oh, great. Okay. So my mom is a big fan of this podcast. <laughs> okay. She's not technical at all. She's never worked in HR. She's an yep. amazing, uh, she is an amazing leader, but um, a lot of the things that, 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 you've mentioned everything from PE um, and so on. She might not get it. If, if you were to meet my mom and you and you just had to dis describe what you actually do and bring to Beamery in simple terms, how, how would you explain that to her? Yep. So I think it's, yeah, it's what I do for Beamery. It's what I do generally. Um, basically, I would say that I help organizations uh, find and get the capabilities they need to do whatever it is they're set up to do. And by capabilities, I mean people, I mean have the right processes, the right information, the right tools, technology, whatever it may be. Yeah. The way that I do that is I, is I look at the businesses that I support or work at as almost my product. And I think to myself, how hard is it for somebody to work here? How hard is it for somebody to be a manager here? Uh, if you and I worked at the same organization, Matt, and I needed time with you, can I get that time? Or is it too difficult for me to get five minutes of your time so that I can get a yes, no decision? Why yeah. do I need a yes, no decision from you? And I can't make that decision myself. So, I, I, so it's a lot of those little things, but from the perspective of uh, how do you get a, a group of people with the right ways of working, the right tools, the right information, then to focus them and, and truly become a company, a company of people working on the same kind of goals. Love uh, it. And that's what I do. Love it. I'm gonna, so you would say, if I translate that back then, tell me whether I've misinterpreted it then. Because we've had a few UX people on here who, who talk about user experience from a product perspective. Yep. You look at it and think, I need to make sure that this is a, a simple and easy place to work in 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 that sense. Is that is that right, or have I misinterpreted it? 
No, that, that that's the to me that's the primary kind of uh, mandate, and then and then it kind of extends from there. So it's the same. I will look at from a customer perspective. Is it too hard for my business to do business with your business? Do I need to know your org chart in order to to conduct business with you? Yeah. You know, and and so many businesses, especially when you look at the startup ecosystem, they optimize for their own internal ways of working, and sometimes they forget that that you know you might be really really efficient at doing something, but it's too hard to partner with you. It's too hard to work with you. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes it's worth sacrificing efficiency to be to be a little bit easier, frankly, yeah. even if it is clunkier. A bit more human. Yeah. Um, Stephen, the reason I invited you on, um, other than um, all the amazing stuff that you do, is that um, you talked about something called HR debt. And... It's, I think sometimes when you just say something, it, it just, I was like, what? It, for me, it's like when you hear something that you've never heard before, HR debt, I was instantly like, what is this HR debt? And I had to read deeper and contact you. And I've sort of, it was only maybe a few weeks ago that you said this, and I've said it, repeated it at least to at least 20 people since. Um, can you just, when you talk about HR debt, can you just explain what you mean, Stephen? Yeah. So uh, debt, just generally speaking, is basically anything that you borrow from the future for today, okay? That doesn't have to be monetary, it doesn't have to be cash, doesn't have to be things on kind of credit cards. It could be, um, you know, very common between friends when, when, you know, you ask a favor of somebody, right? Depending on your relationship, some people feel obliged to then, you know, balance out that equation. Other people just dismiss it. But it, it doesn't really matter. The point is you're borrowing from the future, whether it's goodwill, whether it's resources, so time, uh, money, energy from somebody. Uh, and it's something that you want to use today. In the HR context, it's where you're using that extra bit of resource or that thing that you're borrowing from the future to basically fast track or shortcut getting to an end result sooner. So for instance, um, <clears throat> a lot of companies, uh, especially in this market are saying, we need to double our employment size, right? We need, we need hundred new employees, 200 new employees this year. Yeah. Some crazy number. Um, how do you do that? Well, that basically be, means you have to build a recruiting machine or, or you have to spend a lot of money with agencies and other partners and things. And what you're doing is you're basically hoping that the investment that you're making today in terms of acquiring these people has a payback period at some point when these people land in your business and, and yeah. actually start delivering. The trick is, and, and, the, and the concept here is, just like on a credit card, if you're living off credit day to day and you're putting all your bills and your rent and everything on a credit card, those bills become due. And at some point, the maintenance, the interest payments on that become overwhelming. And if you don't uh, pay attention to these things, you're, you're going to uh, run out of uh, resources to maintain that debt. And the biggest challenge uh, in HR debt specifically is the, the human element, the cost to humans, whether it's mental health, whether it's uh, mistrust, whether it's burnout, you know, whatever it is, um, that has a real, real lasting effect. And it's very, very hard to uh, rebound from that. Stephen, can I just give you an example and can you tell me whether this is HR debt or not? Um, sure. One of our team, um, so I won't mention brands so we don't get too into the company, but they worked at one of the uh, most famous chocolate companies in the world and then they moved to one of the most famous bread companies. 
<laughs> bread. Sorry, they sold chocolate and then they sold bread and now they sell happiness at the happiness index. So that, that's their career, right? Which is amazing, isn't it? What what a brilliant career to have had. When the, the reason they didn't sell bread for very long, part of the reason they didn't sell bread for very long is that they loved the chocolate place. It sounds like I'm making this up, doesn't it? They loved the, they loved the chocolate place, but when they went to the bread place on day one, uh, nobody knew that they were starting. They turned up, there was no desk, um, no one was aware, no one had been briefed, um, and so on and so on. Do, do you think that was an example of HR debt because th that preparation, or, or was that just incompetence, or, or, or are we talking about different things? No, I think I think that's an example of what happens as a consequence of HR debt, right? right. So if all resources get kind of front-loaded, and, and for instance, they might have been hiring people or doing other activities, and and HR debt usually is um, where a priority becomes urgent or, um, I don't know, it could, it could be managerial preference that makes something more important at a given point in time. So, you know, ranging from anything, you know, invalid, like shiny ob object syndrome right through to something that's perfectly valid, right? Like, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, but what happens is the trade-off there, the person potentially or the group of people that might be responsible for the processes to ensure a great onboarding experience from, from the new starter perspective and to make sure that internal company processes and things are followed um, may have been reassigned, for instance, without kind of any, any thought going into what are the consequences of reassignment, right? So I wouldn't say that is the HR debt itself. I would say that that is actually quite a common uh, consequence. Of, of redeployment and, and doing things. So what did they do? They borrowed capacity from the team that would do that smooth onboarding transition and they've taken it away and they've used that capacity today. And then what happened when the person started, you know, a couple of days from now, so tomorrow, uh, there was a hole, right? And yeah. then they fall into it, unfortunately. So I think on a, on a, I mean, this podcast is the most selfish podcast in the world, right? I basically get people on and get, and get free consultancy for them, Stephen, which is what I'm doing to right now. Because, Genius. <laughs> and we share that out to all the listeners, right? Which So um, we owe you a debt. So we'll all try and, and pay this back. Um, I've already tried to pay you back with breakfast, but you can't make it. But um, one of the, um, I think one of the reasons I was so interested in the HR debt bit is, and I know we chatted about this off air and you, you had to correct me again as usual. But one of the things that I found interesting is you were talking about how if you have HR debt, it can stop accessing something that you described as hyper growth. Now, I'm looking at my own company and although we were in a happiness and engagement platform, we're also trying to rapidly grow and so on and so on and, and, and access hyper growth globally. That's the bit that's super interested me. Can you talk us a bit, bit that the link and the conversation between HR debt and 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 not being able to access hyper growth as a company and and, and what you were talking about there, Stephen? Yeah. Um, so I, I think one thing to just kind of bear in mind is growth tends to be where you try to do more of the same thing. Okay, so you're trying to expand, right? Do I'm more. I'm imagining a tree here, a tree. Yeah, I'm imagining that. That's what a tree does, isn't it? It's exactly. Just growing a bigger tree. Right, growing a bigger tree, and let's 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 use that analogy and let's call it an apple tree. Okay, and my business might be that I have people that go and collect, you know, apples, put them in in bushels or baskets, and and that's yeah. that, right? 
Um, <clears throat> growth would be uh, as that apple potentially, or sorry, that apple tree produces more apples, I might hire additional resources to pick up more apples or collect more apples. Okay. Oh, yeah. But there's still a direct kind of link between the number of people I have and, and just the, the sheer physical possibility of how many apples a person can collect. And on the resourcing side, how many apples the tree produces. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so growth is, is really around um, kind of staying, staying with what you do and just kind of doing more of it. Quite often growth uh, symptoms of, of addressing growth concerns are you need more helping hands. Okay. It's yeah. capacity related. If you look at scale, scale might be how can you optimize within that? And so, for instance, you might specialize. You might have somebody whose job it is to collect the apples. And if they're not worried about once the bushel or the basket is full, taking it back to the wagon and getting another one, they can actually collect more apples. And somebody else might have the role where they collect the full baskets, take them to the wagon and replace them with empty ones. One person changing baskets might actually be able to service five or six people collecting apples, right? And, and so you get into the skill mode. Where the HR debt kind of can choke you is when you start investing in that growth mode and you borrow from the future to, for instance, hire more people that are collecting apples, filling their own baskets, taking them to the wagon. If it's not coordinated, they can trip over each other. They can cross paths, okay? Yeah. And you see this in restaurants. If you've ever seen the uh, the inner workings of, of the, sh the kitchen, right? Yeah. They've got doors where certain doors are only for the way in. Other doors are only for the way out. You have to walk in certain sides. If not, you're going to walk right into a waiter or a waitress with a, with a tray full of food and splat everywhere, right? Uh, and you'll have a very angry sous chef. Um, <clears throat> that. We do not want that, Stephen. We do not want that, right? So, so... You know, and the other way to kind of think of that is sometimes when you invest in these short-term growth initiatives without taking the time to say, is this a smart investment? Are we going to trip over each other, uh, potentially even physically? The, the image that comes to my mind is that, you know, the snake swallowing a great big object, right? And so like that anaconda or whatever it is with a big lump in its throat and it's trying to digest that thing and it's choked it up. Yeah. As opposed to potentially saying, wait a sec, uh, let's slow down for a second. Let's think about this. Am I better investing in, you know, more full end-to-end -end process people, so people that can collect apples, put them on the basket and in the carts, and at what point should I break that investment up and say, hey, actually, I'm going to be better off getting somebody whose job it is to, to run the baskets, other people to collect the apples. It also means that you can start thinking about if the person who collects the apples and baskets, even though it looks like it might be the, uh, the more laborious job and, and you know, the, the junior job, that person actually has complete line of sight of what everyone else is doing. They know what the capacity is. They know how many times they've collected a basket from person one versus person two. They can measure productivity. They know if the trees on the east side of the plot produce more apples than the ones on the west side of the plot because by virtue of where they spend their time. And you actually can learn a lot from the system at the same time. Yeah, I don't want to put, uh, you know, uh, when you go down these topics, it, it often can become like drinking from a fire hose, right? So I'm, I'm going to kind of stop there because I can want to make sure that, that these points are coming across. <laughs> no, no absolutely. And but what it raises in my head, Stephen, and I suppose this is kind of the role that you play with founders, right? Um, why is it is it the companies get too excited and can't take that step back? Like, you're like a, I see you like a founder shepherd. I know we're mixing up analogies here. 
you're i see you like the shepherd who like helps the founders understand how it all works but uh, what why do you think is it i don't know is it greed is it just running too fast is it what why why do you because when you when you rationally lay that out to us mm -hmm. that seems i mean that just makes seems obvious but but obviously the fact that when you said hr debt that, that it wasn't so obvious when you explain it it's obvious but it's not obvious to everyone and it's i see this choke happening in many companies why do you think um it's not noticed or or uh, people realize that's happening and i suppose it doesn't have to be founders it happens with ceos of, of fast growth businesses across the world what what what's why is behind this why are we missing this i think i think there's a few different contributing factors some of which are are you know the hr domain's own own uh doing frankly uh and, and other ones are um have to do with either environmental circumstance so what stage of growth or, or maturity is a business in at a certain point in time and quite frankly what what state of maturity uh is the leadership at that point in time from a from you know a first time seed series a b c founder who's never actually uh been a ceo before has no sense of expectation and they rely on a lot on external advice best practice business books whatever uh and the difference is uh you know an mba or whatever might be theoretical but in practice you have to make it fit right from so if i kind of take those in turn if you look at the hr side the hr uh structure in most organizations today is still set up for the industrial age right um just very simply, you typically in a company have a team that does all your recruiting and you have a team that takes care of your people, okay? Whatever you call it, HR and talent, uh, you know, recruiting and business partnering, whatever. The weird thing is the recruiters will hire people and bring them into the business, but then they kind of throw them over the wall and somebody else is responsible for that person, yet they didn't have a say in whether or not they're the right fit. Mm. Okay. And it's not typically until you go high enough up the organization that those two functions or, or disciplines tend to report into the same person. Yeah. So it's just, I mean, it, that works when you're in the factory and people are resources, for instance, right? And, yeah. and even now, that only works in legacy factory environments. Modern factories don't work that way, right? Modern, modern production lines don't work that way. So um, one, you've kind of got that gap, which means that in many HR functions, they don't have line of sight where they're accruing debt themselves uh, because the, the left hand isn't actually in sync with the right hand. Mm -hmm. So investments in uh, recruiting, for instance, to hire, you know, rock star talent or top talent or, you know, whatever phrase is buzzing around. Recruiters typically are given a role and they're, they're optimizing for that individual role. But actually what you're borrowing against might be overall team performance because that individual is going to be one factor, one dynamic person on a team. And they're not considering the team capability in most cases. Sometimes right. you hire for the team, not just for the role, right? And, and I'm sure everybody uh, certainly who, who probably listens to your podcast will, will know of examples where a new entrant into any team party breakfast conversation can actually be really, really disruptive if they're not you know, not because they're bad people, they just might not be the right fit for that mix. Yeah. Okay. So what happens is the interest payments and, and might actually look like on the HR side, you've got a lot of development work to do. You might yeah. have to, uh, you know, in the best case, you can invest in through onboarding and things and, and help the person, um, you know, click better with the team or help the team click better with the person or some kind of compromise there. Worst case scenario, um, it doesn't work out. 
and and then if you have to actually backtrack and and you know exit a person or the person says hey this isn't what i thought i was getting into and they self-select out now you've got a hole you're typically you know 90 days 100 days into the uh, arrangement with this person ignoring any lead time because they might have had a notice period to join you could now be half a year behind on one role in that yeah. one example yeah no mate, it makes complete sense and Stephen, one of the one of the things that I find fascinating about you, and I always like to, I love finding out like what like I use. Um, I, I like the weird things about people that make them different. And one thing that I noticed that's weird about the, the, the what you talk about different to most people that are in, for example, a, a chief people officer or HR director or senior people roles, is that you are actively involved in the the raising of finance in terms of the organizations um, and you talk about you talked about how in your career you've been involved in different amounts of raises and at the moment it, you, you've done that very well at Beamery I, I that's that's slightly unusual in in some of the CPOs and HR directors um, that we speak to as in they do get involved in it but you, you seem to be way more actively involved in it is that a conscious thing or is that something you enjoy or is that your background because now when i hear about hr debt it makes complete sense right like if you're looking at all this thing and you're looking at money and people and, and we do this at the happiness index it is all integrated but how have you ended up in that place where it's such an active part of what you do so so you know i i think you're um it's everything you mentioned. <laughs> so, so my my background actually before I was in in the HR world was actually finance and management information. Um, so I used to represent pretty much information management across all functions except for HR. Uh, this is back in my Unilever days. Um, I was given the opportunity uh, to move and and add kind of HR to my portfolio. But the difference uh, in terms of my own background and career trajectory have been that most people in the HR function, the vast majority, tend to join in a, a generalist role, find a particular niche uh, within the function that they like. So for instance, somebody might be really into learning and development or coaching or performance management or recruiting, right? Uh, and then they tend to kind of specialize. Uh, some people just decide to say generalist and, and move up in that direction too, which is, you know, uh, a completely valid uh, and appreciated career path. Mine was kind of the reverse because by virtue of the way that I used to partner with the HR function and, and I joined, I actually went into HR as a specialist from day one. So I, I led, uh, you know, there was organizational effectiveness, organizational development and employee engagement function. Wow. Uh, I was, you know, there was first senior director of people analytics. Uh, and then I, I was fortunate to have some great mentors and coaches in Unilever where I would actually join the um, HR leadership team meetings as a way to, I mean, I guess the thing to, to use your language to humanize my perspectives. Prior to that, I was a very much, you know, logic data by the numbers, you know, NPS is negative, close the factory. Okay. And this is actually my, um, this is the story of, of how my eyes got opened on this actually. I was doing a modeling uh, for Unilever at the time who were considering purchasing, of all things, uh, and, I, and I kid you not, an ice cream factory in Siberia. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, <laughs> you can't make this up. Bad stories. Now we got ice cream factories in Siberia. Yeah. So, uh, and I was asked to do some of the modeling. And of course, when you do that modeling, a uh, big company, uh, you know, has uh, other resources, like they have their own go-to-market salespeople and things like that. 
So when you do this, it's very much like a private equity kind of mindset where you would say, okay, by buying this, which roles are duplicative that we not need? Which ones do we need to keep? What is the brand? What is the brand equity, et cetera, et cetera, distribution channels. So you do that whole kind of business modeling thing. And basically uh, the outcome was there was 2000 ish people employed by this factory. Um, and we, we wouldn't need really more than around 500 of them because we had, you know, synergies elsewhere in the business. So, so effectively it got down to, should we just buy it for the brand and things, uh, and, and not necessarily keep the, the business unit. Um, when I started looking at it though, from the HR side, uh, and, and, you know, I'll never forget this. Uh, so my, my mentors at Unilever, uh, had me go out to visit this factory. And this factory was just outside of a, a town, I guess, uh, of about 5,000 people. Uh, what that effectively well, means. I, I don't want to age you, but I'm interested in how I'm trying to picture, Stephen, yeah. how old were you at this point, Stephen, in your career? Uh, I this So from a, from a career point of view, I'd been kind of working and whatnot for about almost between 10 and 12 years. From HR point of view, this was like, I'm trying to expose your age on this point. I'm just trying to imagine whether it was like literally in your first year of your career. So you're ten. No, 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 but from an HR point of view, this was like like month four. Okay, okay. So you okay. experience, but yeah, it's in in this. Yeah, this was like my first HR project, I guess you could say. Okay. Yeah, this is big for a big project though. Yeah, uh, and so what they wanted to do is really make sure that I. I, I, you know, they wanted to push me into the deep end. Uh, so, so we went out there, we looked at it and, and this village, um, basically only survived because the people worked at the factory more or less. Right. Yeah. So if, you know, if you start saying, okay, 2000 people in a factory, 5,000 people in the nearest town, um, the ratio of employees or person in town to, to employee in factory is quite high. By the time you put on partners and children and whatever else, right. You, you start to fill that, that community. Yeah. And then it really becomes a, a completely different element because it, you know, if you shut that and you get rid of those jobs, you're not just doing a financial decision or, or a business transaction. You're actually shutting down an entire community in real life, a village, a town, you know, yeah. uh, that, that is very different. You're changing potentially the course of, of a future for a child who, who works for a parent who works at the factory. Right. Yeah. You know, and yes, you hear a lot of businesses today talk about things about the passport lottery and then, you know, in an ideal world where you were born shouldn't affect the opportunities you have in life. Yeah. This was my first uh, exposure to a decision that I might recommend could change the lives of, of kids and, and, and family trees. And, Boy, did that weigh on my shoulders. Um, and, and, you know, and this is, you know, I, I will forever be completely appreciative of Unilever. I mean, you see it to this date. Unilever uh, puts the human element at the forefront of almost every decision they make. Uh, whether it's employees, they will invest in, in infrastructure when they go into new markets. They, you know, they, it's not just a business play for them. They are a business that truly cares about the world that we live in uh, and wants to sustain, sustain that. And that was my first exposure to say, just because the numbers say that you should do one thing, it yeah. doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I am forever fortunate to have that kind of imprinted on my, uh, my character, I guess. Stephen, some people who are listening won't be working for what I would call um, Unilever, a client of the Happiness Index. So I know they're they're a very enlightened brand in terms of the way they operate. Yep. Mm. 
not everyone's working for a, a brand that is that enlightened. Um, when I look at it, I just look at it as short versus long term. Like short term, you might be able to save some money there, but long term, actually, you get way more back from it. But what if someone, a HR professional, is looking at, at their their face? It's twenty twenty one. They're facing the exact same scenario, mm-hmm. um, and their business isn't as enlightened as that. Have you got any advice on on how the HR or chief people officer can help? the business understand that sometimes these decisions there's more in what you can initially see in the PL that um could actually be a good financial decision because sometimes people think it's 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 one or the other you can only make one good financial decision and if you've got any way of helping hr professionals through that yeah so i mean uh, this is actually part of my my um appended role at beamery actually so We've got organizations that have a very strong employer brands and they want to, you know, attract the best talents and engage with them and, and hire them, right? But you can't do that if you're if the way you do that is not consistent with the values of your organization. And what I mean by that is employers can't just go to communities, talent communities, can't just go to the market. And it's the same with consumers and stuff. You can't just go to the market if all you're trying to do is extract value, whether that value is they purchase your product and you extract their their cash, their currency, or it's a talent market and you're extracting talent from the market. Okay. As a, as a, as a business. And if you, if you value things, what you actually need to do is cultivate those markets. You need to set up channels and and ways to give back to the community such that when the opportunity comes for uh, somebody in the community to work with you, for instance, it's not about you extracting value. It's about you presenting an opportunity that somebody can actually proactively engage with, and then you can actually nurture um, that kind of uh, connection, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's largely, honestly, it's largely about mindset. But the the what I have found in my experience is the moment you ask decision makers around how their values impact the decision, not in terms of the model and, you know, does the finances say yes or no, but what does your own compass that you as a founder or you as a leader of this business have adopted and said, yes, this is the code that we, that we go by values, principles, behaviors, virtues, you know, whatever you might call them in your business. What does that say? The right thing to do is yeah, right. Not the academic thing. Okay. And as you start to make inroads there, you'll actually find that uh, a lot of organizations start to get it. So for instance, um, you know, anything from, you know, look at, look at big growing companies right now. Uh, they'll do it for different reasons. And, but it's largely because it aligns to their values. So, so anything from like a crypto.com, which is an online uh, currency exchange for crypto uh, currencies, they also have crypto.org where they're actually open sourcing their code. They're trying to create transparency, which, ultimately leads more people to believe in their brand and their product and things. But at the same time, they're educating the market. If they educate the market, there's a good chance that organizations will have a positive affinity to them. And then potentially even, you know, people that contribute could see themselves working there. Right. Uh, other organizations do this as well. So you might have your.com and then you set up a.org. Right. You know, so it could be something as simple as that uh, through to uh, making sure that, that you have an, you fulfill your obligation basically to, to kind of give back and grow. Um, it, it really does come down to a values play and making that pitch. If, if people in your business challenge, um, 
a decision where the values say you should do A and, and the financials say you should do B and they choose to do B, then it's time to really question, you know, do we have the right values or are these just kind of values that are on paper, the things that we want to tell people we believe, but we actually behave differently. All right. And then that's a, a topic that most uh, CHROs and CPOs are familiar with, uh, which is a whole other ball of wax. Right? I'm having the privilege to, to sit here and listen to this, Stephen, as, as our listeners hopefully are as well. One thing that's formulated in my vision, my view of you that I have in my head, if I try and think about this career that you've described to us, is that when you sort of first started looking at the, the finance piece from a from a school, class, let's call it a classroom for a second. Sure. It's taught in a two in two dimensions. You see it on the paper. The numbers are there. As you've experienced real life, as in going out to the Siberia and so on and so on, you now see it in in the three dimensions, which means that you can make and help make better decisions. Do you think that's a fair description of of, of what you've been learning as it's gone along, or, or or am I oversimplifying it? No, I think I think that's fair, and I think what I'm trying to optimize for is different perspectives right um so like we spoke about this a little bit off off air where um the mindset i try to take is that of if the organization is my product okay from yeah. an employee point of view is it too hard for people to work there okay yeah. is it too hard for a manager to be a manager in my company uh are the processes so bureaucratic that nobody wants to follow them right yeah. or i would rather just if i have if i buy something um you know, uh, for instance, the quantum way. <laughs> okay, new book. Okay, plug for you. Um, but but if I buy something, do I want to expense it? <laughs> uh, do I want to expense it, or should I just eat the cost myself because because it's a pain in the butt to submit an expense? You know, it could be as simple as that. When you think about it from a customer point of view, same thing. Do I need to know your org chart in order to do business with you? Because personally, that's one of the biggest turnoffs I would have. From a candidate point of view. Again, you know, do you keep me hanging? Do you manage my expectations? Do you not, do your recruiters not get back to me? You know, and as you kind of think about those different perspectives and lenses, you can also then do it from different personas. So you can think of what, what would a CFO, uh, uh, kind of how would they interpret the exact same situation or a CIO or a CTO or a people partner, like a business partner, you know, a lawyer, whatever it is. And as you kind of, increase those perspectives that you allow yourself to consider, you start to find common threads. Um, and it doesn't have to be an exhaustive exercise, right? It becomes muscle memory. You just start, uh, you start picking it up and, and subconsciously you'll, you'll, if you do this and you practice this, you'll find, for instance, at your breakfast um, on Thursday, you might actually be going around the room thinking uh, from your own point of view, somebody's being a bit quiet. How can I change the conversation to engage them? That, that is the exact same principle, right? Mm -hmm. But all you're doing now is saying, I want to engage on a particular topic and I, I'd love this person to weigh in because I want to optimize, you know, for different perspectives across the room. Right, so I haven't really got to the questions I want to ask yet, Stephen, because this is so interesting and we've got five minutes left. So we're going to go into a quick fire format, Rapid right? Fire. Let's do it. I've got the normal first question. What makes you happy, quick fire? Uh, I like seeing people take my ideas, improve them, own them, and and do things better than I could ever even imagine doing myself. Love that. Um, you've been involved in companies where money's poured in, right? Yep. What's your advice on how you can build like a thriving culture whilst money's being poured in? Because it 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 must change the dynamic, no matter what the the reasons for the money is. Any any sort of 
learnings and experience about when money pours in it, how what to do and how to deal with it? I have a very simple mantra, consistency. Consistency leads to predictability. So, so don't change your stuff. Um, people know what to expect. Predictability allows you to be transparent. So you can actually tell people exactly what's coming in, the money, where it's going, what you're doing with it, how it's, what will change, what might not change. And ultimately, uh, the transparency leads to fairness, mm. right? Which means that you open up for feedback. Uh, you make sure that you can pass that litmus test of, can I look in the mirror and justify something to myself? Can I tell my closest friends and family and loved ones what my decision is? And can I do it out in all hands? Like, that, that first word, Stephen, go back to that first word again around, um, is it consistency? Consistency, yeah. One thing that um, companies get told as they're scaling is they get, they get told to grow up, as in it's time for the company to grow up. I've seen that work negatively and positively, as in they, some companies stop doing like really good things and building too much of the, what they think a grown-up company is. Any any thoughts on how you can be consistency, consistent, yep. improve, but keep your innovation and anything? It's a melting pot of ideas there. It's, it, it's, it's, so my approach to that is a bit of a hack, to be honest. And what I do is... You like a hack. Um, yeah, it, it, when when companies are are of that mindset, you know, we have to mature our process. We have to be a grown up company. We have to do X. We have to do Y because that's what Amazon or, or some other company does. Um, what I what I advise the teams affected by it. So whether it's HR, finance, you know, ops, whoever, engagement, I say stop thinking process and tell me how you're going to convert that thing that you're worried about losing into a company ritual. Make it a practice, right? Make it a thing you do. Make it about how you do it not not the mechanics of doing it bring it to life and make it an engaging thing can you give me a real real life example steven I'm, i need stories yep so uh so for instance a lot of uh, young companies uh, after seed they might get series a investment they're told you know now we we're series a we're accountable to different shareholders and, and big companies that have invested in us we have to start running executive meetings a certain way they look online and they see okay amazon does those you know famous for those memos we spend the first x amount of time reading the memos etc cetera, etc cetera. That doesn't work if your executive spends too much time writing the memo. And the purpose of the memo actually um, is so that the person who writes the memo has it clear in their own mind because they're accountable for that domain. It's not actually for everybody who reads it, okay? There's different ways to achieve the same thing, the same outcome, okay? So for instance, to going around the room and asking somebody just to give their two-minute synopsis of what is the single most important thing you need to do this week? What help do you need? What key decisions have you taken that I need to be aware of or I can help you with? Yeah. Simple like that. Then extend that. So that's consistency in your, in your leadership team meeting. Now what you want is predictability and extend that. Have either a rotation or, or at an all hands each week, you know, one of the members of the team says the exact same thing to the company, right? And, and achieve that transparency around it. And then let the company engage. Uh, so, Steve, you said the most important thing is X. Have you considered Y? You know, yes. yes, I have. And here's the reason why I think X at this point in time is my priority over Y. But, you know, um, it, it, you, you turn it into an engagement model, a ritual, a practice, rather than trying to be somebody you're not. I love that, Stephen. Um, final question. One of our latest investors who'd built and sold a, a SaaS business similar to ours, sim mm -hmm. similar to sort of the, the market that Beamery and the Happiness Index are in, um, was giving some advice and said, you've got to be really careful of diseconomies of scale on recruitment. And what he was saying is like, you might have five developers and you can do X amount. Then suddenly you've got 100 developers 
but you're only doing like times two of the amount of output that you were doing. Is is this economies of scale with recruitment? Do you see it as a real problem? And if it is a problem, is there anything that you can do about it, or is it the reality of becoming larger? I think I think it I think it absolutely is a real thing. Um, so I think there's different kind of views on that. So one one kind of thing is just in terms of how do you kind of even have that as a problem, first of all. So how do you get those developers when everyone else is competing for them, right? One kind of key tip there is you staff your talent team for the company you're, you're going to be, not the company you are, right? So you build the machine to, to build the company you need to be. So if you need to be 500 people and you're 200 now, you build a machine that can recruit 400 people in whatever timeline, divide it through, add on the onboarding of the recruiters and pull it back a bit. It might mean that you're very, very heavy in the short term, but recruiter attrition is quite high because as recruiters get more experience, they tend to move on. Or if you've got a great career path, going back to what we said earlier in the conversation, a recruiter is someone who knows what they brought into the business, you might be able to offer them an internal move and then they can start partnering with those people, right? They know how to build winning teams. So put that to use, right? So think ahead. The HR side of the equation should be staffed by the company you are, okay? So you don't overinvest. So if you're if you're 200 people, you staff HR to manage a team and support a team of 200, okay, yeah. with, with plans. Um, on developers and things like that with the products you build, what that allows you to do by having that kind of HR uh, backend mindset, it means that you look at the capabilities and you say, what do we need to deliver by when? What do we need to be able to make that delivery? Okay. And if it's more of the same, i.e. exactly what you described, we 2x the number of developers, but we don't 2x the, the productivity and the output, that means we've hired in growth mode, not scale mode. I've got more people picking apples. What's the difference? Just make it clear to, to, to our listeners, what's the difference between growth mode and scale mode? Right. So, so we've hired more people to do the same jobs, right? Yeah, we might have just divided right. the work, right? Yeah. So I might have somebody in a time zone that works you know, these hours, someone else picking up the work when that person goes to sleep and just doing more of the same, but I'm not actually moving forward. I'm just doing more of the same. Right? Yeah. I've got another, I've got two teams now that build the same or work on the same product. Yeah. Right. But I'm not actually, I don't have that third team that's building new products. Okay. So how do you actually scale? How do you say, look, I'm going to take out. So uh, if you take tech in particular, a tech function, this is where you start talking about what does a DevOps team, a development operations team look like? Oh. Development operations team, to use our previous kind of analogy, would be the team that's in charge of the baskets. Yeah. Right. That means that your developers can spend more time moving forward, delivering the product roadmap, uh, you know, and those yeah. kind of things. Stephen, your really powerful story where we where, where we had the tree and the baskets and the apples, it's about moving from a growth mindset to a scale mindset. Is that is that correct? That is correct. Okay, I just didn't get the labels. That may, that's really clear in my mind. Then, um, Stephen, um, I've, I'm in a, a WhatsApp group called the HR Collective. I've got a question in there, sure. um, which I'm going to put to you. Um, right. I put my answer to it, but I want to know your answer. <laughs> what number of employees should a startup? employ their first HR person? <laughs> There's no magic number. Um, so, we like so, a magic number, Stephen. We like a magic number. We like a magic number. It really, it, honestly, it, it depends on what the company is trying to achieve, okay? What I can tell you is by the time most companies realize they need somebody, it's too late, okay? Mm. Um, I, I have the privilege of working with various uh, venture capital and private equity investors, and I have them understanding uh, now that the sooner the better. 
Um, there is a lot of evidence that um, the, the sooner you're able to get somebody who knows whether it doesn't have to be higher, it, like it, it could be as an advisor, for instance, okay? But the sooner you're able to get the support and the advice you need from somebody who knows how to build a, an organization deliberately with intention, the more successful your organization is likely to be. I can count so many organizations where people's trajectory, um, you know, they might have been office manager or something like that. As a result, they inherited payroll. From payroll, they became a people partner. Yeah. Nothing against that career trajectory, but if you're going to use that model, then again, slow down and invest in the person. Yeah. Right? Get them a mentor, get them on CAPD training, whatever it is. Okay. Um, but but invest in the person. If you get somebody that can work with the founder, uh, and, and it really the reason why I say it's like like day one, if you can, is because so much of this, especially when you're starting up, the, the DNA of the company is very much the DNA of the founders or the founding team or the yeah. first leadership team. And if you believe that companies ultimately kind of are extended from the values, uh, then then you want to influence and, and get on top of that as soon as you can yeah. um, and, and then grow from there. But like I said, it doesn't have to be a hire, right? It can be an advisor. It can, you know, whatever. I do a lot of pro bono consulting for founders. Yeah. Providing their mission is something that I think the world needs. I'm happy to support them for free. Uh, just because I think it's if it's important enough to do, then, you know, not having the the resources to pay for somebody is not an excuse to not do it well and you have done that on this podcast Stephen. we i feel like i've like drenched everything out of you here <laughs> which means i'm going to attempt to get one last what um one one last drop out of you in terms of um if you're someone starting your career if if you're starting you're thinking i want to get into hr um, and it could be actually someone who's working in finance like you were and or, or so on um any uh, in the last 30 seconds any little tips or luck because we got we got the senior people who listen but i love to think about the people that are just starting any any tips for them yeah i think uh number one don't be in a rush to get to the role that you think you want okay a lot of people decide they want to kind of be a, a people partner or a business partner or something like that Actually, the best thing you can do is invest in yourself by, by opting to do the, the dirtier jobs. So work in people operations. Be the admin for your HRIS tool because that is equivalent to learning how the engine works. And if you learn how the engine works, you'll be a much, much better driver. Uh, yeah. You know what, what, how it goes faster, slower. You'll know what that clanky noise is and how to fix it. If yeah. you spend the time there, then just, you know dip your toe in and, and don't commit to something. Try being a people partner. Do some recruiting. Mix it up. Yeah. You have one real good opportunity to do as much as possible and increase your breadth. But the heart of what you know, if you want to really, really be a great professional, is learn the engine, learn the engine room. From there, you will be an outstanding whatever it is you choose to do. Even exactly. if you leave HR and move into another function, you will have a much, much better empathy and appreciation for what happens in that function. Stephen, I need to finish it there because we are all in Bianchi debt now. And I feel like you need to get a lot of this down in your own book under some kind <laughs> of label because this is powerful stuff, Stephen. So I just want to finish by saying every time I spend time with you, Stephen, I come away enriched and nourished. So thank you um, on behalf of myself um, and all our listeners. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for having me. It's been my privilege uh, and honor to share what I can. Hopefully it uh, benefits somebody.